It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham at the start of another week during which very little, or perhaps even nothing, uh, will actually happen. Prime Minister Theresa May was spotted leaving a church yesterday with half a dozen eggs. Was it a symbol of anything? Could we read anything into it? Uh, One thing is for sure, that's the only thing she's leaving this week, the church, that is, of course. Believe it or not, the Brexit talks between the Tories and Labour are still going through what can only be described as nothingness. Uh, What they could be talking about after all this time is anybody's guess, but Keir Starmer is now demanding a Referendum as the price of making any kind of agreement. Isn't it now obvious that they aren't going to agree on anything either in a small room or in the House of Commons? So why don't we just move straight to the European election, shall we? They're only 10 days away after all. 03444991000. Meanwhile, back in the real world, we are kicking off the show today with a cry from the high street uh, that are, that's being strangled by a variety of circumstances, including online retailers. The boss of Tesco's is calling for a new internet sales tax to protect small business. But isn't it actually the big supermarkets that have squeezed the life out of the local businesses in the first place? Isn't he being a bit of a hypocrite here? 03444991000. We want to hear from small retailers. We want to hear from people uh, who don't go shopping in small high streets anymore because they can't park there for fear of getting a parking ticket for 135,000 quid. 03444991000 is the number. Coming up, we'll bring you the latest on MPs' expenses. Apparently, uh, they've now been charging us to house their grown-up children in their second home so that we, the taxpayer, are footing the bill. They're still ripping us off. Plus, why taxpayers are still footing the bill as well for all those solar panel farms. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, if you were looking at the newspapers this morning, you would see uh, that the boss of Tesco, a man by the name of Dave Lewis, says that there are unsustainable business rates and the system uh, which is using those business rates to collect money from bricks and mortar retailers are reaching breaking point. He says, uh, basically, that there should be a 20% reduction on the business rates for small business in high streets of this country. And he also says there should be some kind of 2% levy put on online retail sales. Because the problem at the moment is that if you have an actual shop which sits in a high street, you will be charged based on the value of that particular property. If you are an online retailer, you don't have to pay that kind of tax because as far as the government is concerned, you don't actually own a business. You don't actually own a shop. Now, he may have a point and it may be a good idea to start putting a bit of a sales tax on the online retailers. However, we all know what will happen. They'll just pass it on to us. What I would say is that it's a bit rich, is it not, coming from one of the biggest supermarkets in the world to say that it's online retailers that have killed off the high street because it's not. 
It's big companies like Tesco's, like Sainsbury's, like Asda, the big supermarkets who have killed off the high street. And I think Dave is being slightly disingenuous. But let's talk to Claire Bailey, who's an independent retail expert, and let's find out from her whether she thinks that Dave is right uh, or Dave is being slightly, slightly hypocritical. Claire, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. I think more than slightly hypocritical. One thing I would like to mention is that online retailers who trade from physical premises, like anyone that trades from any commercial premises, not just retailers, do pay business rates. And small retailers who only have one outlet or a shop below a certain size or valuation pay no business rates. Mm. So smaller retailers already have the advantage compared to a chain store next door neighbour, let's say. Okay. So if you're a, a boutique shoe shop trading next to a Clark's, you might pay nothing for the exact same shop in the exact same high street as they would be paying. Um, So I think that there's a bit of a disparity there. The issue is the way that the government value property for business rates. And they assume that a warehouse in the middle of nowhere, which could be Amazon or ASOS or any of these huge companies, is not considered as valuable from a business rating perspective as a high street store. So they'll still pay per square foot, but they'll pay proportionally less. Right. Um, that said, I mean, this has been a dispute going on for about eight years. I think it was first raised in the Mary Porter's David Cameron yes. review of the high street. Yeah. So it's not God, was that eight years ago? Yeah, I think Blimey. it was 11. Time flies, yeah, doesn't it? Time flies. So, I mean, there's been lots of people lobbying for a rebalancing and a fair uh, level playing field with business rates. But whacking on a couple of percent here, and it's all a bit arbitrary. And actually, online has declined, according to the latest mm. ONS, as a proportion of total retail sales. And it is quite important in the mix. I mean, only this morning, news reports come out from the works that, you know, they sell all sorts of oddments and bits and bobs that kids like. They've done really well. Why? Because they've used click and collect. They've used online to drive people into the shops to collect the product. So the two actually sit neatly together, especially for the bigger companies. So to be honest, I think, yes, business rates need absolute fundamental overhaul, but not chucking arbitrary numbers yeah. around at online retailers. Well, no, exactly right. And I mean, disin- disingenuous Dave, as I'm going to call yeah. him, Dave Lewis, right? I mean, here's a guy who says, don't worry, we'll be more than happy to pay the 2% extra levy that everybody else will pay who has an online business. This is the same guy who shut down Tesco Direct, so you yeah. couldn't actually order as much through Tesco's online as you used to be able to. And surely as well, Claire, I think you're, you and I are going to agree on quite a lot of this this morning. It's, there's been many, many reasons why the high street um, has yeah. been suffering, suffering over the over the past several years, one of which is the difficulty in parking your car if you want to go and actually yeah. shop locally, because most places, if you can find a space at all, you're going to have to be very nervous about jumping around and not getting a ticket. Well, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of structural issues that are barriers to high street shopping, parking being one of them, accessibility being another. But also, it's not relevant to what people want anymore. We're not really seeing any kind of a death of a high street. It's more like, well, I suppose metamorphosis would be a good phrase. What we used to have then is no longer relevant to what we as the public want now. We want places to go out and do things. Mm. You know, we're seeing a lot of growth with high street, small gyms, um, tax advisors for one-man band traders. So it's services coming into high streets and much more experiential retail. And the stuff, you know, the people that just sell stuff, they move out of town or online, supermarkets being one of them. But we've seen a growth in convenience stores. So little Tesco's, little Waitrose, and Aldi's and Little to a certain extent are very good because they're on the edge of town, Mm. but they're not huge. They're small enough to be able to pop in after work. So I think what's really happening is it's changing out there. Yes, I agree that business rates are unfairly biased towards high street properties, 
and that needs addressing. But it doesn't need addressing by some sticky tape fix. We've been clamouring for years for this to be done properly and actually look at revaluing commercial property at large. Mm. So a warehouse that can sell product is as valuable retail space as a shop in a high street. So they should pay equally for each square foot of trading space. Right. And, I mean, does it vary? I presume it varies geographically depending on the yes. commercial property price of that particular area. I mean, for example, would a massive Tesco's somewhere uh, outside of Brighton pay more money than, say, if there was a Debenhams inside of the, the sort of the city centre of Brighton? In the taxes. complicated factor with all of these business rates is that it, it's got so many ridiculous factors. The first few metres from when you walk into the shop is valued higher. Yeah. If you've got a wide shop front with a lot of window versus a narrow shop front with a deep store, you pay more, even if you've got the same footage. Right. It's absolutely complicated. The valuation office values commercial properties and there's different business use classes. So you have A1 retail, A3 is food. You've got D categories for things like gym than leisure, B for officers, and each of them pay a different percentage of the value of their property as a business rate. But then there's discounts if you only have one commercial property or if you only have a small commercial property. Mm. And that's how smaller businesses do end up paying considerably less to their counterparts. So I think the system is onerous. Take somebody months to calculate what you should be paying (laughs) and nobody really understands it. Get rid of all that red tape, put in a sensible tax that's fair for commercial property equivalents to council tax at home, and then everybody should be on a winner. Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? Because, of course, one of the di- one of the big difficulties for an awful lot of people here as well is that markets' rates and markets should sort of determine themselves. I'm not a great believer uh, in, in sort of protectionism when it comes to any kind of economic policy, really. And I think no. the trouble is, is that it seems as though there's a bit of protectionism here, but none over there. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's just the old system's broken. I think, obviously, it was, it was created well before even the internet became a thing, let alone e-commerce transactions. So, yes, in the old days, a warehouse in a field probably just held animal food, and it wasn't particularly high-value property. Mm. These days, that's different. So it, it's not so much protecting, it's a lack of addressing a problem that's been raised for years and years and years. And there are certain certain circumstances where businesses are paying far more in their tax than they are in their rent because landlords have taken a pragmatic view and said they're liable for the business rates if they don't have an occupier. So they'd rather have somebody paying no rent, keeping the building safe, well-maintained and paying the rates than have to take on that burden themselves. So now we've got this dynamic that as a result of onerous taxation, landlords some of whom sit behind pension funds and institutional investments, are seeing a reduction on their returns because they're having to be quite reasonable with the retailers to keep somebody in the shop at all. Hmm. I mean, 7,500 net store closures in the UK last year. It's quite a lot. I mean, our friend uh, Disingenuous Dave says he's expecting about (laughs) 10,000 this year alone. But that's just, again, it's market forces in the end, isn't it? I mean, when when we watch places like Debenhams, Mother Care, Toys R Us and all these kind of big formerly sort of chain superstores dying. There's a reason for that. People just don't want exactly. to go there anymore. But there will be something that replaces them. Fantastic figures I read lately. Under, it, was, it was on a social stream. It's called Woolies 10. 10 years on from Woolworths' demise. Mm, yeah. And 800 and something shops closed within 40 days. All but three were reoccupied in the last 10 years. Right. So they've been occupied with all sorts of things, creches, galleries, estate agents, doctors, dentists, 
convenience stores, boutiques and so on. So in reality, yes, there is a net number of closures this year, but that property may well go into reuse. Mm. Also, if it gets reclassified as residential or office property, which is entirely possible, then it sort of drops off the radar as retail property because it's no longer in the A class. Right. But it's still there, performing a role, potentially giving a family home to people who then shop in the high street. Mm. So it's sort of very much what goes around comes around in these things. And what I'm seeing a lot more of as well, Claire, is the kind of in- inclusion, if you like, of other businesses inside of these mm. big supermarkets. There's one not far from me in London at Big Tesco's. It's got a Next inside it. There's, yeah. uh, there's a Sainsbury's near where I live in Sussex. It's got an Argus inside it. It's also got a Timpsons where you can get your keys cut or your films made into DVDs. You know, there's there's min- myriad of, of sort of different things you can now get inside of the big supermarkets. Is that likely to continue? Yes, and actually it's happening in the high street. It's a lot, there's this direction of travel towards mixed use. Yeah. It's obviously Sainsbury's own Argos, so that's going to be something we see across the board. Yeah. They roll out Argos counters in Sainsbury's stores. Mm. But beyond that, I mean, you can go back quite a long time. You will have seen cafes in Waterstones when they were still popular. Right. Um, I think we've seen uh, Starbucks in New Look. So putting social and uh, cultural activities into retail space is a way of maximising the dwell time, the amount of time we spend there. I mean, just lately, Primark heralded its biggest store in the world opening in Birmingham. Mm. And inside there, you've got things from Disney-themed cafes to beauty salons. Really? nail bars, which of course provides a whole experience mm. to their ideal customer who might want to go and get an outfit and dolled up for a night out and have some lunch yeah. with friends while they're at it. It's interesting, they isn't it? Because because people are still raving about that Primark. People I wouldn't necessarily have expected to go on about how great it is and how wonderful it is and how other people saying, oh, I can't wait to go and see it. The other one <laughs> I was going to ask you about is, I don't know how much you know, and it's a bit localised, but it's a place called Surrey Keys in London. They've got an old style shopping centre um, which is a bit run down and it's got a big Tesco in it but apparently they're knocking all that down they've got permission to turn it into a sort of high street themed um shopping center so basically it'll be like recreating a high street presumably yeah. complete with uh, parking wardens so if you park your car there you're going to get a ticket <laughs> i don't know but you know they're actually going to make it an outdoor kind of walking high street type scenario yeah i think there is a lot of that about actually i only just uh, spoke to somebody last week um about a development that's happening just north of cambridge it's the first new town to right. be built since I think Milton Keynes. Mm. And that also is creating wide open spaces for markets and festival type events in right. a, a new town centre, along with mews and alleyways to create a sense of heritage and purpose in a modern development. So it's obvious that people want these places to go to, but they need to be safe, appealing, accessible, and have the correct offer. And when you can create a whole place, like what you're describing in Surrey Keys or this place outside Cambridge, you can actually do the research in advance and work out who is it you need to proactively attract to that place to make it relevant for the community it's there to serve. Of course, high streets evolved organically and are now going through the pain of losing the stuff that's no longer relevant and perhaps making way for something that is. And the trouble is, of course, it doesn't... I mean, I'm going to say this, and even as I say it, I'm realising I'm probably not right to say it, but things will go up in price. I know that we all say we've got a lot cheaper uh, sort of clothing now than we used to have, and there's lots of things that we can buy that that cost less money. But overall, we're all spending more money on all the stuff that we buy, aren't we? Well, the latest figures show that we are spending more for sure, but it looks like we're spending more on less. 
So that might well be borne out in the inflation figures. Um, I think that the impact on the currency, obviously, way back after the Brexit decision, didn't Mm. hit retail quite as uh, quickly as was anticipated. But then retailers tend to buy their dollars and euros well in advance. Yeah. They'll have now traded through that currency and will be absorbing the impact of no longer having the buying power in euros and dollars that they used to have. So I think that whether the retailers are able to absorb the price so that the customer doesn't pay more, it'll impact somewhere, either in reduced service Mm. or reduced staff hours and things like that. So when costs fundamentally go up, something's got to give. And if they're a fragile retailer who don't have the sort of deep enough pockets to swallow that impact and keep prices stable for customers, then we'll either see them closing stores or putting prices up. No, exactly right. Claire, delightful to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Claire Bailey, independent retail expert. I mean, does anybody believe uh, that if there was an online tax to be put on all online retailers of 2%, that they wouldn't just pass it straight back to the consumer? Disingenuous Dave, as I'm calling him, uh, from Tesco's, thinks that it's a good idea to tax the uh, independent uh, retailers who are online rather than taxing the uh, bricks and mortar retailers like Tesco's, like the small high street dealers, uh, because it's unfair. Well, like I said, I think he's being disingenuous because it was Tesco's and the, the their ilk who destroyed the high street in the first place. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. There's lots going on. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. The dog days are I spent a fair bit of time yesterday uh, in some uh, quite sticky and muddy sort of sand in the uh, English Channel. I was down on the south coast uh, in Sussex, out near Bexhill. Unluckily for me, the uh, tide was completely out, uh, so my Labrador Ziggy was able to take a run at all sorts of things. Unfortunately, there was a couple of other dogs who kept jumping up on me, uh, thinking that I had something for them. So I got covered in sort of muddy, horrible, ghastly sand. But it was great. Let's talk now to Mark Abraham, founder of Pup Aid, TV vet, of course, as well, because there's rather a good reason to celebrate uh, if you're a dog owner or a cat owner today, uh, because it looks as though uh, the new law, Lucy's law, uh, is going to be coming in and it will mean that puppy farms are banned uh, the selling of third uh, from third parties to of, of kittens and puppies uh, to individuals will stop and people will have to deal directly with breeders mark a very good morning to you Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. I've managed to clean my clothes off from yesterday. It was one of those kind of uh, funny... I got in the car and thought, there's a funny smell. I'm not quite sure what I've got on me, but it's not very pleasant. <laughs> and then you realise that the the, uh, the dogs are still on the beach. Yeah, well, you well, just along the, just along the coast for us then, because I'm in Brighton. Oh, are you? OK. Well, great. It was yeah. beautiful yesterday because the tide is very rarely out as far as it was. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really wonderful. It was like being at Camber or something like that. But uh, let's talk about Lucy's Law because you've been working sure. on this for a while. Uh, Michael Gove says it's now going to give animals what he's got regards as the best possible start in life. This is great, isn't it? It's, it's unbelievable, actually. It's a dream come true. Uh, you say we've been working on it for a while. Myself and my fellow grassroots campaigners have been doing this for 10 years. And we just cannot thank uh, Mr Gove enough and team, the DEFRA team, uh, and all the parliamentarians, the celebrities, the supporters, everyone that sort of signed and shared e-petitions along the way, because this is a massive result for the animals. It's a result for the dogs and cats, uh, especially the breeding ones who are very rarely seen hidden behind closed doors on these sort of puppy farms, whether they're in uh, on the UK mainland, uh, in Wales or in Ireland or in Eastern Europe. And, and what Lucy's Law does is it makes every single breeder 
uh, accountable, everyone that's selling a puppy or a kitten, accountable, transparent, uh, and we remove the whole chain because previously it's all been about licensing third-party sellers. And sadly, for example, like pet shops, not only are the, the, the product, product, if you like, the puppies and kittens damaged already, but so are the mums. And by taking all the chain away, it makes, as you say, people deal directly with a breeder or better still cons- um, consider adoption right. and rescue. And, and the story, of course, itself is magnificent, isn't it? Because Lucy is indeed a, 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 an actual dog rescued from a Welsh puppy farm five years ago, Cavalier King's Charles Spaniel, uh, who was in a terrible way, but has, but, is, but has in a way kind of made this all happen. When I, when I first suggested this to Lisa, who, who owned Lucy, that, yeah. uh, that um, Lucy would be the dog that changed the world, um, it, it was quite a moving moment because she'd passed away six months before. She had horrific uh, injuries. She, had, she was uh, epileptic. She had separation anxiety, arthritis, dry eye. I mean, a list of medical and behavioral conditions and surgical, uh, which she finally succumbed to after three years in freedom. Uh, but she was always so happy and she was always so brave and she was always so keen to meet people and, and wag her tail. So really, Lucy's law is a tribute not only to Lucy, but also to every single victim of the third party puppy trade, the, the mums, uh, the, the pups and, of course, um, the kittens as well. So it, it's a it's massively positive first step. Uh, and, and campaigners and ethical animal welfare organisations and all the parliamentarians and celebrities that have helped and supporters are all thrilled today because this is a it's huge progress. And, yeah, we can't be happier, really. It's a fantastic thing. And, I mean, it comes into effect next year, which is, which is quite soon, which is also good. But, I mean, I suppose the reason for doing this for a lot of people is that it is quite, um, you know, remarkably remunerative. You can make a lot of money doing it. So, I mean, are you confident that people will just stop doing it or will they try and break the law? What do you think? Well, we're already seeing um, a huge um, movement in terms of breeding dogs being abandoned or ex-breeding dogs now being abandoned into rescues in Wales. Right. So it's already made a difference. Now, if people want to break the law, they'll always break the law. You know, people still drive over 30 miles an sure. hour in a 30 speed limit. Um, and, and on that basis, it, it's almost like, well, what's the point of having a law? Yeah. Um, so this is, again, the first major step in, in making every breeder seller accountable. Um, people will maybe try and bring a fake mum out. If they sell a sick pup, they're still accountable. It's also quite easy to spot a fake mum. So there's there's many uh, ways that we've been criticised all along the last 10 years with our campaign, but not one argument works and not one argument is backed up by any evidence. Right. So as, as, as the leader of the Lucy's Law campaign and my tiny team of campaigners who've done this in their spare time with no money, no resources, uh, and we're all distributed around the UK... Um, for the campaigners to have a victory like this, and for I, I can't stress enough, the first major step in tackling irresponsible mm. uh, dog breeding, ir- uh, uh, puppy smuggling, you know, we've totally removed the market for illegally smuggled pups and impulse purchases right. from pet shops right, and people that meet in neutral locations like service stations. So it's massive progress. Before this, it's been licensing of third parties. So to ban puppies and kittens from third parties has to be the best step forward for the animals, which is what our campaigners and ethical animal welfare organisations who've been fighting so hard for this have, have wanted for years. Sure. And if it is um, to be kind of uh, something that holds firm and, and people can report other people that they see trying to sell puppies illegally or kittens illegally, is there will there be a place they can call a line, a hotline or something they can call if they see something they think isn't right? Absolutely. You've got you've got a, a range of choices. You've got the RSPCA, you've got trading standards, you've got the police, you've got local authorities. And that's why banning something 
makes so much more sense than licensing something because as we know you can't license a third party seller to sell to to a point where it ever benefits animal welfare so you take that whole third party chain out the loop if someone suspects something don't just walk away inform the local authorities have them investigated there was a recent case funny enough the law hasn't even come in yet but someone there was a, a someone selling puppies uh, there were sick puppies they got investigated and they weren't licensed. So mm. they were banned from uh, from animals and, and fined and, and sentenced. So it is actually enforceable because it's a, a whistleblower-driven uh, activity rather than uh, a sort of uh, a reactive licensing um, situation. It, this is a proactive. We're getting rid of all the dealers. Everyone's accountable. Level playing field. We're removing all the cheap, sick pups from the market. And we're saying if you want to breed puppies or kittens, provide the mother, show the place where they were born, and be accountable. And it's pretty simple. Um, and uh, we look forward to the changes happening in April. The government are, are making it April because they want to give the, the country uh, and the public enough time to accept for businesses uh, to, to embrace the new changes. So when it does come in, it's going to have the biggest impact possible. Fantastic, Mark. Well, congratulations. Well done. And on behalf of all the dogs and cats of the world, I'm sure they'll be very grateful as well. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Mark Abram there, founder of Pup Aid, uh, of course, a TV vet as well. Uh, fantastic news, really, uh, for anyone who loves cats and who loves uh, dogs as well. Because uh, from now on, third-party sales banned, puppy farms banned. Uh, it's going to be great. It shows you as well uh, that if you are dedicated to a particular cause and if you are uh, concerted in your efforts, you will get somewhere. 
that uh, low-income households are actually now spending much less on energy than would otherwise be expected, and that's because of the price. Because mm. energy is very expensive in this country. I mean, I don't know how it compares to, to other parts of Europe or other parts of the world, but it feels like it's gone rocketing uh, over the past, say, three or four years. Well, electricity particularly is very expensive in Europe. It's quite expensive in the UK and relative to other European countries. But Mm. the big difference is between the EU28 and the rest of the world. And we have energy costs uh, here in the EU that are way above those in the G20, which is why, of course, it's so difficult for British businesses and Mm. European businesses generally to stay competitive and employ people. And why is that? Why is it so expensive here? Very largely because of policies. Uh, If we didn't have uh, energy and climate policies designed in the way that we do, uh, our energy costs would be much lower. I mean, no one challenges seriously the case for reducing emissions at reasonable cost. But here in the EU, we're just doing it at such dramatically high cost that Mm. it's not providing an economically compelling example. And as you said, it's not sustainable in the long run. This is not a sustainable climate policy. And there is a sense, and whether I'm right in saying this or not, I don't know, you can tell me, there is a sense that there's quite a few people, and it may only be a few, who are getting rather wealthy off the back of uh, some of these subsidies, who are running, you know, what you would call clean energy companies and doing very well, making good profits for their shareholders. And that, that at the expense of the taxpayer, always sounds to me uh, like a bit of a rotten deal for us. There are huge fortunes being made in this game. Uh, annual subsidies to renewable electricity in the UK are now around about 8.6 billion per wow. year. Wow! Uh, you can imagine. Uh, yeah, you can get very rich in this game. Uh, presenting a talk radio show, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> well, I'm getting pretty rich doing. No, sorry, I'm not going to say that. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are people are sort of you know scratching their heads because, for example, I have um, a you know a, a small flat in London. Now, if I wanted to. I probably wouldn't be able to get planning permission to put a solar panel on the roof of, of the building in which I live. So how does any of this even work? I mean, how, how can you even get solar paneling and how do you get the subsidies in the first place? Well, many of the subsidies have now been closed to new entrants, but mm. those who have entitlements carry on receiving them. So at the moment, the, uh, the game is slightly less favourable than it used to be. But many of these industries are expecting the things to resume. So what they're doing is they're sounding out landowners, they're sounding out householders to try to build up a portfolio of projects for future development. Mm. And Mr Corbyn has promised to reintroduce subsidies uh, for these things. Whether he actually does so, of course, is an open yes. question, because the costs are so high and so damaging to poor households that I think, you know, he, he really ought to rethink that particular yeah. matter. But does it seem a bit skew-whiff, if you don't mind me saying that, to, to, to subsidise the people providing the energy because they can't sell it, and not, and not actually subsidising the people who, who would save somehow using fossil fuel energy by, uh, uh, by giving them a subsidy to put a solar panel, solar panel on their house? past people did get subsidies uh, to put panels on their roofs indeed they received over 10 times the wholesale price yeah. uh, and that was just unaffordable because remember that those payments come from other people's bills so it looks as if the, those people are getting uh, you know, cheaper energy but in fact they're using more expensive energy they're just getting somebody else to pay their bills for them and that really isn't fair particularly if those other people paying the bills happen to be poorer than the recipients of the subsidy yeah, it really does seem it's, it's, it's bizarre. So what would, what should we be doing here? What you know, Because obviously, as you say, it's a good idea to try and cut emissions uh, back if we can. It's a good idea. Go on, not sorry. Not the price. What should we be doing? Well, we have to um, clear up the mess that we've created. Since 2002, we've had a series of very bad policies in relation to renewable energy and indeed energy generally. So we, first of all, we have to clear the mess. Uh, 8.6 billion a year in subsidy is simply unaffordable. I don't think it can carry on. 
uh, and some kind of retrospective reduction will have to take place. Now, nobody's talking seriously about that because it's so legally controversial, mm. but the sums of money are so vast and the economic damage potentially so great that I think we will have to do it. Once we've started to clear away those things, well, we need to say, how can we reduce emissions at reasonable cost? And that's certainly going to be less renewables and more gas and probably more nuclear. Mm. And what about the wind farm uh, plans in this country? Because we keep hearing that there's going to be more wind farms built, there's going to be bigger uh, sea wind farms built as well. Is that likely to be something which will turn this around or is it just going to cause more subsidy problems? Well, a lot of the subsidies I've just mentioned are actually paid to wind. Uh, solar gets about 1.3 billion per year, and the rest of it is wind and biomass largely. Uh, yes, there, there are many plans for more offshore wind farms, but these are extremely expensive. Mm. The industry is claiming that their costs are coming down, but nobody's actually building at the costs they're talking about. They're only building at the much higher subsidies elements to which they received some years ago. Now, do we believe that costs are going to come down? Uh, not many of us actually do. No. Um, well, no, that is the problem. I mean, is there any Brexit dividend here as well? I mean, because you were saying that the 28 European countries have very expensive energy. Would our energy necessarily get more expensive or less expensive if we leave? The largest single Brexit dividend available is in energy and climate policy. Right. If we could redesign those policies so that they suited us rather than suiting Germany and other European states manufacturing this equipment, uh, then we would do ourselves a favour. Really? Okay, so we could actually save ourselves some money. Uh, that's one of the first times I've ever heard anybody on any radio station ever saying that we'd actually be better off. The, the subsidies we're paying to renewable energy are driven entirely by meeting the European Union's uh, Renewable Energy Directive target. Right. Okay. Uh, so it's not about reducing emissions, this is about meeting a target for renewable energy. Well, there are other cheaper ways of reducing emissions, mm. and that's what we should be doing. So okay. yes, there is a huge Brexit dividend here. Yeah, and how far into the future have we kind of guaranteed that we're going to do all that? Because, of course, as ever, we find out sort of sometimes too late that we've locked ourselves into something that we can't get out of. Uh, that is probably one of the key issues here. These subsidy contracts are very long-lasting. Mm. Uh, the shortest ones are 10 to 15 years. Right. So we, we're looking at um, guaranteed incomes for many of these sites uh, into the 2030s. Mm. And indeed, subsidies at the moment are 8.6 billion, but they'll carry on rising as people with entitlements to contracts build out and actually start drawing their income. So it'll be in the middle of the 2020s, it'll still be in the region of 10 to 12 billion per year. It won't start falling until the end of the 2020s, and it'll carry on. Last contracts will expire in the 2030s. Right. And what's your view, generally speaking, uh, Dr. John, of the whole Extinction Rebellion movement and their wish to make us carbon neutral, as they call it? What does that mean to you? Well, I don't have a quarrel with reducing emissions. I, I do have a quarrel with their extraordinarily aggressive and uh, I, I think you know, ideologically driven commit to, commitment to one particular means of reducing it. It seems that they're, they're more interested, actually, in changing the character of our society than they are in reducing emissions. They don't want business as usual. They don't want people to have the lifestyles they currently have. Right. Well, that's a different argument. Uh, that's a political argument rather than an emissions supply. Uh, well, it really is. But, yeah. but also, but, well, but more importantly, because you're an expert in many of these areas that lots of people are not, and I include them in that as well, by the way, you know, these are the people who are telling us that the world will effectively end and sort of strangle itself and, and run out of air uh, in about 11 years' time. We're now asked yesterday in London to listen to some 11-year-olds who apparently know more about this than we do. 
Yes, and there, is, there are real economic dangers from these particular energy policies, and these are quite short-term dangers. So we could damage our economy and make ourselves significantly poorer yeah. within decades. And the dangers of climate change are there, but they're long-term. These are you know, chronic, extended threats into the future. But the economic threats from getting your energy supply policy wrong are very, very near-term, and they're extremely problematic. They really so you, are. So you have to be much more careful about it. Uh, otherwise, you jeopardize the whole climate agenda. And I think that there's time for Greens to wake up about this. They, they should say, as you said, this has got to be sustainable in itself. If you want people to remain committed to the, the emissions reduction policy, to the climate change agenda, then you've got to make sure that we stay prosperous. And at the moment, the energy policies they're recommending are threatening that prosperity. Yeah. Well, not only that, but what I discover is even more kind of worrying for me is that the political parties are effectively kind of adopting these kinds of suggestions because they're desperate to, to hang their hat on anything that might make them more popular because they currently are so unpopular that they'll literally embrace this and hope that they can take it forward somehow. Yes, and some leadership would be good there. Yeah. Um, many people in the industry understand precisely uh, what's going on, but they're scared to speak out. Politicians yeah. are, in some cases, just ignorant. But yeah. In many cases, they know the truth, and as you say, they're, they're scared. Mm. Uh, that is a pity. Um, some realism in here would be very welcome. Climate change matters. The energy supply you know, question matters a lot. Some real clarity would be a good idea. Yeah, listen, Dr John Constable, possibly the most sensible person I've ever heard, ever, anywhere, on any radio station. Of course you're going to talk to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Thank you so much, Director of the Renewable Energy Foundation. Have you ever heard so much sense from one man talking about climate change? Yes, it's important, but don't cut off your nose to spite your face and then slit your throat in the meantime. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham coming up. It's Matthew Wright at one o'clock. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Baptists from last night and what happened there uh, overnight. Of course, lots and lots of glamorous pictures in the papers today uh, of all the people that went. Ant and Deck, very much uh, a reunion scenario, and of course, uh, big wins for Killing Eve. Uh, but before we do that, let's go back to the phones because Mike wants to talk about the problem with retail shopping. Mike, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. A beautiful day. It is lovely, again. isn't it? Finally, spring has sprung into summer, I think. It could be actually even quite warm out there. It's always like that in Yorkshire anyway. Yeah, I know. God's country, right? You keep telling me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in retail, Mike, for years. Yes. And everybody seems to be um, ignoring the elephant in the room, mm. which is pensions. Yeah. The workplace pension payment now is 8%. Right. When you pay your card, uh, you know, kind of tap and go, and all the rest. Yeah. There's a fee for that for the retailer. So, the politicians who said, you know, kind of mm. um, the minimum wage won't affect business. Oh well, right. yes, it has. Does it vary on well, the old well, contactless card depending on which one you use? Yeah. And if you use a credit card, it's different again. Yeah, right. It, it's very common. The only thing is. <laughs> Uh, I used to be with Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm. Sorry. There's other banks as well. There are. Uh, but basically, they just told you how much. Now, one of the businesses I, I had uh, was uh, um, as a landlord. So the cost to me, I only used a, one of my cars to keep them separate from my account. Sure. Um, I wanted to pay for, for that um, credit card service, £12 a month. Right. And all of a sudden, it became a minimum payment. So it was £39 a month. Right. And it's it all adds up, that, doesn't it? 
it, it, it adds up. And how many times do we hear these big companies like Tata Steel and all the other big companies who can't afford their pensions? Yeah. Well, if these politicians listen to somebody in the small business sector, neither can we. Yes. You, you keep putting it up. And what you can't do, you, what you can't do is have staff there. If you're on £10, that's another frightener, £10 an hour. Yeah. So to pay somebody £10 an hour, these are the economics, to pay, you've got to take in £30 an hour because you're on 30% markup. Yes. On top of that, you've got workplace pension, you've got to pay for the people to use the card on your machine, you've got business rates, yeah. and when somebody makes threats like that, £10 an hour, there's very few rolling leases. So when your lease comes up and you've got a break clause in your lease, mm. are you going to stick with it and risk that uh, uh, Corbyn's just bluffing? Yeah. Because if he brings in £10 an hour, that will close a lot more small businesses on the high street. And I don't think these politicians no. go down high street. But I think it's also pretty hypocritical, is it not, of the boss of Tesco to say, oh, it's all getting killed by online uh, shopping. It's not. It's already been killed by Tesco's and a few other people. Well, the, the, the other thing is, like, small businesses, these that you know, I like anyway, you yeah. go and get a personal service. You've got to have a person in front of you on the other side of the counter. Yeah. Tesco's and the like, and boot, all of them, they have these self-service tools. Mm. So they're not paying anybody an hour. No, exactly. But I know, I've been in Tesco sometimes, and I know that some of the stuff that they're selling, I can get from the wholesaler cheaper, and yet they're selling it more price than me. They must get it by the shed load. Oh, they must have. Oh, they must have absolutely coining it in. And they've also done away with all of the kind of personal people like the butcher uh, and some of the other sort of, uh, you know, the deli and some of the bakery people they used to have. They're getting rid of all of them. Mike, listen, I've got to run. Thanks for your call. Uh, Mike knows a lot about retail. And he says uh, that this is the problem. It's not just the fact that online shopping is squeezing it. Everything is squeezing the small businessman in this country and the small businesswoman. And that's what's wrong about it. Let's talk about one of the big businesses in this country, though. And that is, of course, the show business business. Dan Kane. Uh, is the senior showbiz reporter for The Sun Online. He was at the BAFTAs last night. Uh, Dan, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Afternoon, Mike. How it are you was, doing? It, I'm very well. It was a particularly glittery night, wasn't it? Lots of great dresses, lots of uh, uh, show-off behaviour from uh, the likes of Ant and Deck, um, uh, the, the, sort of the resurgence of uh, interest in all of that. And a great night for, uh, for British drama, a great night for Killing Eve. Absolutely, yeah. I was there myself. Um, it was good to see, like, the... the best of British turnout really to, to support the, the industry and um, like you said Anton Deck with the head look, both looked in great spirits mm. Jodie Comer a massive success on the night and, and really good for, for our talent jo- Jodie Comer who won leading actress seems to have been kind of a big surprise to a lot of people who didn't realise she was actually from Liverpool <laughs> Well, absolutely. She's so good at her accents. Um, I mean, w- watching the show, you could easily believe that, that she's fr- from elsewhere, you know. I mean, her, her accent, her natural accent is very strong. Um, she hides it well in her roles. Yeah. Um, but she's such a multi-talented actress. And, yeah, her speech was, was definitely one of the highlights of the night. It was. And Killing Eve got Best Drama Series as well. I mean, surpri- was you surprised by Benedict Cumberbatch getting leading actor for uh, for Patrick Melrose? Because miniseries got Patrick Melrose as well. I mean, I, was, I wasn't expecting that to do so well, really. No, I mean, when it did win the miniseries, I kind of thought that might set the scene for later on in the night, and that kind of proved to be the case. Yeah. Um, he certainly put in a great performance. Um, he's such a versatile actor um, that you couldn't really count against him, but yeah. 
Yeah, I, I certainly don't begrudge him winning, winning the award for that one. No, of course. And the bodyguard did all right, but perhaps not as well um, as it might have done. They got the award for, I think, most dramatic moment, you know, which was the uh, the explosion that killed the uh, uh, the Home Secretary in the, uh, in the show. But they didn't really get anything massive apart from that, did they? No, no. I mean, Killy Hawes was up for the for the Best Actress um, award, but that that was such a stacked category. I mean, yeah. there was so much talent; anyone could have won that. And, right. and I think the Bodyguard as well. It was such a huge hit, but it was it might be at the back of the judges' minds or the public's minds. It was a little while ago now. So, um, and with Bling Eve coming back around the corner, it's a bit fresher. Maybe that played a part in it. I'm not too sure. Mm. And Britain's Got Talent getting entertainment program was a bit of a surprise for me as well because I thought that was very much on the sort of wane. But it shows you that Simon Cowell still got friends in high places. <laughs> well, yeah, it certainly did well. I mean, um, while, while X Factor might continue to struggle and then, and then changing up that formula, Britain's Got Talent seems to be holding firm and doing really well. Uh, they're quite similar formats in a way, but maybe it's got that little bit more variety, mm. a little bit more wholesome, um, that the people still uh, like to watch it and, and it resonates with more people. Sure. Now, you were on the red carpet for, for most of the night. Um, who was the most impressive person that you spoke to? Um, I had a good, well, a, a brief chat, but a good chat with Piers Morgan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he was moaning this morning that the BBC didn't mention the fact that he was nominated but didn't win anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was in typically bullish mood going into the venue. A, a, a lot of uh, tongue-in-cheek there as well, I, I may add. But he was, uh, I think he was kind of expecting maybe to miss out and he uh, and he was ready to take it out on the, uh, the, the, the judges of the ceremony this morning on Good Morning Britain. Yes, but of yeah, course. he was always good value. Yeah, and Fleabag, of course. I mean, their star, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, the, sorry, the writer of uh, Killing Eve and the Fleabag star. She didn't, uh, I'm surprised Fleabag didn't get men- get mentioned, really. No, I mean, it, it was almost uh, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge show at one point, though. I, I remember looking up at who was collecting awards, and, and she was never far away, you know, from, from the speeches right. and uh, being focused in the audience. But... Um, yeah, it was such a big show um, in, in the last couple of months. I, I, I thought it may have done a little bit better, but I mean, she still did well on the night overall, so not too much to, to feel sad about there. No, quite. And a, a great night to, to prove once again that, I mean, people forget it's one of the great exports that we do, uh, which is uh, which is British television. Oh, absolutely. You could just see the depth of talent there. Everywhere you looked uh, was some of the biggest stars in, in the industry. And, and also, not just that, but with the likes of Benedict Cumberbatch, he has a big pedigree in A-list Hollywood films, yeah. the Avengers. So to see someone of that calibre um, turning up for the, for the small screen um, tells you a lot. Yeah, it absolutely does. So have you got more of the news to come in the paper tomorrow about it, or is, it, uh, is, is that it for today? Well, I, I primarily do the online um, stuff, so I need to check in with the paper. I think there's a few more bits and pieces doing the rounds from, from the after parties and, and stuff from last night. But the, the main hall... Um, good to go this morning from the, from the carpet and the, the winners and so on and so forth good stuff all right dan thanks very much indeed dan kane there senior showbiz reporter uh, for the sun online talking there uh, about all of the winners from last night there was i mean there is an incredible amount of talent when you look around the uh, the british tv business and you see uh, the likes of killing you which actually aired first in america but they normally wouldn't allow it into bafta because stuff have to air for first in this country but apparently uh, because it was so british and so connected to british television uh, that was entirely why it was there a couple of uh, quick tweets to finish up with bob says i'm not sure it needs 
a think tank to tell us that finding a job during a recession is tough. Just another example of making people feel like victims. Life is full of highs and lows. Deal with it. Well, I don't think it was about that. I think the point about the Resolution Foundation's report was that it wasn't so much that during a recession these people find it difficult to find a job. It was afterwards as well. And Felix has a different view. He says, completely agree that people entering the workplace in a recession have lower life chances. It makes people much more risk averse, uh, which is entirely true. And Jay says, supermarkets are psychological in the way they are set out. Fruit and veg is at the front, so the first impression you get is a fresh, colourful food. If you want to look at frozen fish fingers, go to Iceland. No one buys more than they need just because it's there. Well, I mean, I think the point about the supermarket uh, conversation that we had this morning is that way too much stuff is being bought. But also, uh, if you're going to get old disingenuous Dave to tell you um, that the problem with shopping in this country is be- it's all being taken away by the online business, that's not true. Uh, much of it has been taken away by the power of the big supermarkets. It's as simple as that. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.